0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space.
1: That's how we started with FIT public tours, if you like.
0: What does FIT stand for?
1: Free independent traveler. Ah, So okay. Rather than a group, just FIT bookings, ones and twos, et cetera. And yeah, so um, that started a completely different thing because you know, we had to develop our own computer booking system, you know, the advertising, reservations, you know, instead of just getting one check for 40 people, we were getting ones and twos, et cetera. And we had to employ a lot more staff and produce brochures and, you know, and that was moving into becoming a tour operator, if you like.
0: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplorers.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to Sullivanexplorers.com. You've no doubt heard the phrase, one thing led to another, and we often say that when we mean that the exact sequence of events between point A and point B is too obvious to need recounting, that the reader, or you the listener in this case, should be able to guess easily what happened. On first thought, few would believe that phrase describes the career path of my guest today, Glenn Maroney, founder and CEO of Scenic Luxury Cruises and Tours. But as you'll hear, that's exactly how he sees his journey from aimless college dropout to bus tour operator in Australia, to CEO of a shipbuilding business and owner of 22 luxury vessels. That certainly seems improbable career arc to me, but as Glenn explains one thing really did lead logically to another, along with a lot of grit and hard work. I've not sailed with Scenic yet, but I expect to do so in the future, since Glenn has invited me to be the godmother of their new ship, Scenic Eclipse II. The cool thing there is it means I get the honor of breaking the champagne bottle on her bow and officially bestowing her name. All that during a ceremony at the shipyard in Spain in a couple of months. Well, Glenn Maroney, it's a delight to talk to someone who's clearly every bit as much of a travel bug as I am. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You're talking to me not from Australia, as your accent might suggest, but tell me where you're sitting at the moment. I live in
1: the Alps in, uh, in Switzerland, and we've lived here for almost nine years. We shifted over in June 2014. We were pretty regular visits, visitors before that, but My daughter came of school age, and we had to decide where we were going to put her into school, and as we were spending more and more time over here, I shifted from Australia in 2014.
0: Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, you are known for many things around the world, but as the owner, operator, entrepreneur behind Scenic Tours. And if I understand the story, this is a company you started first as a land tour operator that now runs you know a fleet of vessels, including very elegant luxury discovery yachts. So one thing I really want to explore with you as we get into the conversations, you know how how a how an Aussie tour operator becomes a shipbuilder and the admiral, as it were, of a sixteen vessel fleet. That's quite a progression.
1: Oh, well, I think we're a bit above that. Now I think we've got twenty two or twenty three river cruisers. and and then uh, as of when we get the two new ocean ships this year, I think we've got, We'll have four ocean cruise ships: two, two Emerald and uh, and two Scenic. Uh, one of which, of course, you're going to be the the, the godmother for Eclipse Two.
0: Very, very much looking forward to that. If you think way back to your youth in in New South Wales, tell me about the young Glen What What kind of kid were you at between the ages of five and ten?
1: Oh, geez, I don't. Oh boy, I don't know whether my memory goes back that far. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I, I suppose I
1: was very, very lucky. I had a, a very happy childhood. I wouldn't say I was a, a grade-A student by any means. I got myself in a bit of trouble from now and again, particularly when I got into <laughs> high school, of course. I was a, I suppose I had a, a slight rebellious streak, you could say, and didn't like authority and certainly didn't like being told what to do. That That's an absolute, which still uh, uh, to this day I suppose is a character trait. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, my father, was he was a chartered accountant and he was a senior partner at a local accounting firm. And when I left school, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll be an accountant. Dad had dragged me around to many of his business meetings, etc. And for one reason or another, he thought I had a reasonable business brain and maybe that's the way I'd go as well. I went to university and uh, I must admit, I've got to be brutally honest, I hated every moment I was there. <laughs> and, oh, I. I saw it means to an end, so I stuck it out. And I didn't do too good in some years. And other years, I did very good, and I put my uh, mind to it and did very well on a couple of occasions. But then halfway through my third year, I just said, no, I I just don't want to do this. And it was literally on a whim, and I left. And my father, at the time, noticed that I was sitting around doing nothing, and he was involved. He'd left the practice, and he was involved in a property development company that had a, a range of different properties and they had a what you would call a trailer park, but we would call a caravan park. And it was very run down. And he said, you know, son, you're sitting around doing nothing. Why don't you go and give us a hand to redevelop this thing? So uh, I got on the tools and went down and helped them there. And,
0: and was that physical rebuilding of it and also the business yeah, plan? Was, I mean, every dimension? Yeah,
1: it was everything. I mean, the, uh, it, you know, it was from painting the fence, getting rid of, old caravans, digging trenches for new plumbing, literally building a garden, you know, it's a whole stack of and as well on the business side, doing the feasibility of putting in on site caravans that we could lease out and and then go and negotiating that. My father was very busy with some other major projects. So I, I really got, I think I would have been, I don't know, twenty two years of age. So I got a good Handle on you know some ideas of business, but it was it was both physical and mental, yeah. I suppose. Kind of just side threw of, you in
0: the deep end of the pool, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, and then they uh, the
1: partners that actually owned that property had a hotel just outside Ipswich in regional Queensland, and it was what we call in Australia a hotel with a liquor barn complex, and a liquor barn is basically a, a Queensland very large bottle shop. So, you know, and it was losing $10,000 a week at the time. Oof. And, you know, back in oh, what there would be, 1984, I think, that was a fair bit of money back then. And they said, Oh, son, uh, toddle up there and see what you can do. And I had no idea about anything to do with hotels. I didn't even know how to pour a beer. But I went up there and it was pretty obviously things weren't being run the way they should be, and I won't go into details. But I found myself after being there for a couple of months running it, and which was an interesting thing for a 24-year-old. And uh, you know, we after 12 or 18 months, we turned it around. It was making money. It was sold at a profit. And uh, after that time, I came back to Newcastle. And I must admit, I was absolutely burnt out. I used to get out of bed about one o'clock, lay on the lounge and About 7.30, go to bed. I did that for a couple of weeks. Mum and Dad got sick of me and said, come on, son, you've got to get off the lounge and go and do something again. And they had another little motel down in Warrnambool, which was on the Great Ocean Road um, on the south coast of Australia in Victoria. And the hotel had 50 rooms and it was empty. It was off the main road, about a mile out of town. And they'd spent a fair bit of money on redeveloping it, but it had no business. It didn't have a license, so therefore the, the travelers wouldn't stay there. It was out of town. It used to be on the main road, but the main road had been redirected. So really it was, it was a bit of a poison chalice because they'd spent a lot of money on it, but somebody hadn't really had a look at the feasibility of, of buying it or spending the money in the first place because it was just in the wrong location. And it really had no chance. And while I was down there, I, I suppose it's the first time that I really got the travel bug. I hadn't traveled much before then at all, with the exception of a trip to Fiji. I hadn't really been outside Australia. And, you know, our holidays with the family were typically a couple of weeks a year to the Gold Coast. So I certainly wasn't a big traveler at all. And, I, and we just didn't have the money.
0: And the Gold Coast is the New South Wales coast around Brisbane? Uh, it's actually in Queensland, it's just over the,
1: the New South Wales Queensland border. You know, we used to go up there and spend two weeks at Christmas every year. Um, uh, so at any rate, I, I went down there and, and of course I was um I really was captivated by the beauty of the region. It was so much different to anything that I'd ever seen before. I mean, if you've been in that region, you'd think it wasn't in Australia because it's truly lush green, rolling hills, the coastline is absolutely dramatic. You know, London Bridge and the what used to be the twelve apostles, etc., but also it has these little communities. You'd think you're in Ireland. You know, you've got bluestone fences and potato farms, and and it's also very volcanic there. So you've got a lot of these volcanic lakes and calderas, some of which are full with the local wildlife. So, I, you know, I suppose it was one of the first times I'd really travelled on my own, and I was down there for quite some time. And I explored all the little villages like Port Ferry and other local areas and drove along the Great Ocean Road and just explored the region. I really fell in love with it. And while I was down there, there was some people that used to run tours. And they said, you know, this hotel 10 or 15 years ago used to be full with pensioner coach tours from Newcastle. I said, oh, you've got to be kidding. So uh, with no other means of seeing how we could get some income into the place i thought well maybe that's a way for us to do something so there was a guy there shooting a video for the local tourism authority and i paid him to come and take some footage of our hotel the riverside gardens motoring and we added that to his and you know edited it around and produced a video on the region and then with that i i just started contacting pensioner clubs and Probus clubs at senior citizen and dragged around my big television set because there were no small screens in those <laughs> yeah. days. And I had this; it ruined my car. I only had a two door car at the time, and it cut up the seats like crazy. Yeah, but I dragged around, made appointments, had an itinerary packaged up, you know, negotiated with the coach companies and various other hotels to get them down and back there. Put a whole program of tours together and just started selling tours. Um, so that was the start in 1986.
0: You hadn't had any formal schooling or training in any of you know, the business or the audience model or the, you know, the hospitality model, just common sense. You, where, where, did, where did that come from?
1: Oh, I, I don't know. If common sense. Um, fortunately, the way I go about business is I get a great idea, I start talking about it. Then after a while, um, I actually start doing it before I think about all the problems involved. And then I actually get in the middle of it and I say, what the hell did I do this for? And then I fight like crazy and get out of it. I think you can – I've got to check in history that way, but interestingly enough, it always tends to work out. It certainly has so far. But look, I just saw the opportunity and um, uh, I thought we had a really good product. And and when I went around and presented it to the groups – it was so successful. We had two coaches arriving on a day. They'd stay there for six nights. We'd do a full change, and then another two coaches would arrange that, arrive that night, and we were booked out for the whole season. And the only time we weren't full was during winter. We had two, two and a half months where we didn't have all that much business. But, uh, you know, it was it was a huge success. And then I started, instead of just selling to the groups, I thought, well, there's these pensioner publications that – are full of these package tours for senior citizens, maybe I'll start selling to the general public just on ones and twos and threes and fours and whatever on an FIT basis. So we took a full-page ad in the local Senior Citizens Gazette, went down and met with them, and that's how we started with FIT public tours, if you like.
0: What does FIT stand for?
1: Free Independent Traveller. Ah, So rather than a group, just FIT bookings, ones and twos, et cetera. And, yeah, so uh, that started a completely different thing because, you know, we had to develop our own computer booking system, you know, the advertising, reservations, you know, instead of just getting one check for 40 people, we were getting ones and twos, et cetera. We had to employ a lot more staff and produce brochures and, you know, and that was moving into becoming a tour operator, if you like.
0: So was this all still under the umbrella of the Great Ocean Road Motel, or had you that began to, to reorganise in a different way at that point? Yeah, that's right. That,
1: that was the start. I was actually working for my father and his two partners that owned the properties, and uh, you know that's how we started, and, and we got moving to start with. And then as time went on, um, it became pretty clear it could be a serious business. And realistically, the other partners of my father weren't really interested. They were interested in the properties, but not necessarily in the touring business. And, and I thought, oh, well, there's only two options here. I I've started this, I'm running it, but I'm not doing it for myself. And there's two options, I leave or I buy it from you. And after some negotiations, I bought the company from them.
0: Ah, great. So that was was it called Scenic then?
1: Well, it, it's originally called Warnable Scenic Tours. Uh, I can't even then,
0: spell that.
1: <laughs> oh yes. W A R R N A M B O L. Warnamble.
0: All right. I'll check it out on Google Maps. <laughs>
1: yeah. So it, it's a beautiful area. <laughs> it's spectacular. A very lovely town. But we started running tours to Expo 88. They bought a hotel in Lismore. They also bought another hotel in Canberra. We were running tours here, there, and everywhere. But I saw the demand from our guests, who I knew most of them personally then, Because I used to go around and do the presentations, we built up a lot of loyalty with groups wanting to do other tours. They enjoyed one and they wanted to do something else. So we started packaging tours all around Australia and so on and so forth. And it just went from
0: there. So that's the bus scene. What It's a wonderful story of how you fall into your first entrepreneurial gig. You literally just get thrown in and figure it out, which I think happens far it's probably far more often what actually happens than the way people write it up in their memoirs their, and their and the business books. It's a great story. How, so how did when did you get the river bug? Because that's a whole different breed of cat to be doing, even just chartering onto someone else's boat on the Danube or something. Is it's got similarities, but there's a lot of difference to it as well. Yeah, there's there's really um, I bought out the. Um...
1: I bought most of my father out, not entirely, and then the two partners in May 1990. And we didn't get into river cruising in any way until 2005. So in the 15 years between then, we became a very successful Australian tour operator, running coach tours all around Australia. We had a very large program to New Zealand. We were selling to the Canadian Rockies, South America, South Africa, And we certainly started to branch out in that 15 years to being a global tour operator ex-Australia. We also had offices in the US and the UK and Europe selling back into our Australian tours. So we had a number of international guests. So the business had grown quite significantly. And uh, I decided to take on the last bastion of touring by far and away the largest tour market in the world, Europe. And it's completely dominated by a few major players, Travel Corporation, Globus, at our level, they're probably, oh, Talc, probably at the five-star level would dominate it out of the US. There were a few other players, but it was going to be very difficult. And I, uh, there was a guy who used to be the managing director for Insight Vacations, one of the Travel Corporation's brands in Australia, and he was very experienced, and I, I put him on to start developing our European touring program. And, of course, we wanted to be different to what was already there. It was going to be certainly more luxurious than the Insight and Trafalgar's of this world. But uh, he convinced me after some time, he said, you've got to have a look at this river cruising. He said, you know, the coach touring in Europe is becoming very difficult, particularly in the major centres. You can't bring buses in anymore. You've got to be outside. There's a lot of walking, the traffic, you know, packing, unpacking, 6 a.m. starts. He said, it's just not what it used to be. It's, it's now, you know, more of a marathon than it is an enjoyable holiday. And uh, he said, you, you really got to have a look at these river and you, you take your bags with you. You can touch the scenery. You drop off here and there. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a cruise operator. I'm a tour operator. I'm, but, you know, over time he convinced us to put a brochure out and we were originally selling into another operator just on an FIT basis. We didn't have any group allocations, et cetera you know pretty well by the time we got the brochure out they'd filled up um and we had plenty of demand but we couldn't we couldn't sell anything
0: who were you going up against those other operators at the time was viking already established or- yeah viking we were
1: actually selling into viking we had wholesale rates from viking we were actually selling into their ships uh, and then the next year we thought okay the only way that we can we can get any traction here is to go out and charter take a punt go out and charter some sailing so that we can you know guarantee that we've got the capacity, put a big marketing campaign against it. So I charted four departures from Amsterdam to Budapest and they filled up very quickly. We went out and charted another three. we ended up with seven that year. The next year I thought I'll take a real punt, we'll go and charter ten sailings. and when you've got ten sailings of fourteen nights duration, it's for a small company that we were, it was quite a financial you know as a risk that's for sure. yeah any anyway, rate, we we filled those up very quickly, went out and chartered another seven. So we had 17 departures, and that was in the year 2007. And it was pretty clear when I started to talk to the people that we were chartering from, and that age it was Avalon and Viking, if we wanted additional capacity, they wanted long-term agreements, and I totally understood that because if we walked away from them, they'd be left there with you know, capacity that they'd put on for us. So I thought, well, if I've got to sign a long-term agreement, I might as well go and do it myself. So January 2007, I turned up in Europe and went around to shipyards and they said, oh, you want to build a river cruise? Oh, that's nice. Well, you know, we can build one for you in maybe two or three years time because we're booked out and you can't get the engines, you can't get any of the materials. So uh, that's when the fun started.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll bet. Well, wait a minute, just a bit of a sense of scale for me, if you will. I mean, I've... Ganged up with some friends now and again, and chartered departure on a, like a twelve-passenger river cruise in in France, or a ten-passenger sailing in the Inside Passage of Alaska. And you know, it's it is a bit of a gut check moment when you're writing a check for you know seventy thousand dollars before you've gotten the eight or ten other friends that are going to each. Pay their share, right? And you're sure. you're on the you're on the hook for that. And you can oh, have yeah. a 70000 $70, thousand dollar charter week all by yourself on that ship, or you can get the other ten yeah. people to sign in. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, what when your vessels you were buying full departures of, I would guess were in the hundred plus passenger range. That's so, a chunk uh, of change.
1: They be- yeah, they range between hundred and fifty and one hundred and eighty. Yes.
0: So I mean, you're talking a couple hundred thousand dollars as the price of admission.
1: From memory, each charter would have been four hundred and
0: fifty five hundred thousand. 500,000. Yeah. I mean, you kind of went by that as we'll take a punt, but a you know, better part of a half a million dollars on the hook. That's.
1: Well, for 2007, that would have been not far from 10 million. Yeah. Eight and a half. So, you know. How,
0: how do you float something like that? I mean, is that just a loan and risk proposition? What are the mechanics of making something that, that happen at that scale?
1: Oh. I can't remember back then. <laughs> uh, look, you know, I think um, you know that the payment terms—you don't pay all at day one.
0: Oh right, um, okay.
1: So you you might sign the charter agreement in, say, January of the preceding year, and the, the sailings are from May the following year, and you might pay ten percent front, of which oh, you know, right. you've okay. got to cover yourself with nothing, and then you go out and sell it, and you're probably. Final balance may be due six months before, or three or four months before, by which time you're hoping that all the guests are paid and that you've actually booked to a level that you can pay that. So, yeah, look, it is a risk because, as we've seen so much, you've got a Ukraine wars and whatever, but that would have been force majeure. You wouldn't have had to pay any rate. But certainly, there are other things that may not be force majeure, could affect, you know, obviously GFCs and. Economic downturns and other Gulf wars, or whatever, which aren't directly, don't directly affect the business, but overall still risk. So, yeah, you're certainly taking a risk, but as it turned out, it was very, very successful.
0: So, you're told it's a couple, three years because you're at the back of the queue to get a ship built. How did that go?
1: Yeah, um, they, they were absolutely flat out. It was crazy times back then. I mean, you literally just couldn't get a shipyard interested. And I didn't. I didn't want to take what they wanted to build me, which was the standard river cruiser with small cabins, no private balconies, no choice of dining facilities. You know, relatively small. You know, some of the cabins back then were 120 square foot, and that they were on the ships that we were chartering. I mean, they're, they're really, really tiny. They had fold-up beds and all this sort of stuff. And, so they basically said, "Look, if you want us to build a copy of that, you know, we can probably have something for you. But you know, if you want a totally new design with engineering and everything else, you are back of the queue." So we found a shipyard eventually that could deliver one for us, based in Hardingsville, then uh, not far from, uh, oh, oh, not not far from Rotterdam, and uh, they they said they'd be ready in May, but it ended up being delayed and which is quite common in shipbuilding. It was delayed by four to six weeks. And then we found another shipyard in East Germany in Tangamunda, and they'd built river cruisers in the past. And that was a fun build because very few people there could speak English. And uh, they had major they had major problems with their engineering, and that ship was seriously delayed. And uh, we had some fun and games there. We were really you know pushing to try and get it built. and And then, right at the last moment when it was ready to go, the water level on the Elba River went down to a point where we couldn't get the ship out. Uh, even empty, it was its draft was too deep. So basically, we got told finally by the captain, who was going to be our captain. he He said, "Well, somebody, please tell Mr. Moroni that this ship is not going to be out of here by October?" I remember the conversation as if it was yesterday and I just looked at him. I just said, excuse me, um, you know, I've got all these guests jumping on planes to come over. What are you talking about? So um, we didn't take no for an answer. We went and contacted a, uh, a marine salvage company and we brought in divers and we brought in five 17-ton uh, bolsters, if you like. Lift bags. Uh, yeah, well, they're actually steel, these. And uh, we welded cables and protection around the hull and we lifted up the whole rear of the hull. We brought in low-draft tugs from the Czech Czech Republic and we towed it out. And literally the day after it got towed out, the river was closed for commercial shipping until October. Mm. Wow. (laughs) So that that was our baptism of fire into shipbuilding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious now about the vision because – there's a lot of, you know, both big picture sense of what does this ship want to be like? What do I need it to be able to do? You know, where does it need to be able to go? How maneuverable does it need to be? And then, you know, the stores, the provisions, so it can be a moving city for 14 days. And then a whole other layer of vision about what do I, what do I want my guests board? How, how do I want their experience to be? What scale of elegance or luxury or simplicity... How much of that came really from you, and how much was that bringing people around you who certainly brought the specific skills? But curious mostly about the vision, your sense of what you wanted this ship to be and you wanted life aboard this ship to be like. Well, we certainly wanted to be different
1: to the ships that we were chartering, and I think that was partially what we wanted to deliver. And also, I remember a conversation I had with one of our loyal past guests and it was on one of our charters. When It doesn't matter which company it was. And he said, look, would you mind if we could have coffee for 15 or 20 minutes? I'd just like to give you some feedback. And I'm eternally grateful to him because all the ships were filling, everything was great, people were pretty happy. I thought, you know, this is terrific. And he, he sat me down and he said, look, Glenn, you know, this is a great experience, but it's not scenic you know this is you know this is not what you do and he proceeded to tell me why it wasn't
0: what kind of points did he make he made
1: you know we've always been all inclusive which means inclusive of tipping inclusive of sightseeing no optional sold on board and you know when you when you come with us you know exactly what you're getting and he said look you know this and we bought their program 100% so it wasn't our program at all and It was always from the time that you came on, there was an expectation of, you know, two euro per person per day tipping. There was an expectation that, you know, all the basic sightseeing was included, but any of the nice sightseeing was always optional extra and overpriced. There was a feeling amongst the the guests that, you know, the cruise director on board was probably the highest paid person in the company. And they were more interested in in getting those tips and optional sightseeing and and selling things to the guests, and and there were other things on board, you know, as well. And and I was really quite downtrodden because I thought, you know, we were having a, you know, it was a great experience, etc. And he really pointed out to me, you know, this is great, Glenn. It's a it's a great concept. This river cruising is fantastic, but this product is not yours. This is not scenic. You're putting your name on it. You're selling it as a scenic product, but it's not
0: yours. And uh, so he he must have done other cruises or tours with you before. So he, he knew he knew what you were known for when you were in charge of everything.
1: Yeah, I mean you know, we coined a concept in touring back in two thousand with our land tours in Australia. We call it scenic free choice. And uh, you know, touring typically in those days, before we really got going, one size fit all. You know. It, Everybody followed the lollipop and did the same standard sightseeing tour. And if you were quite active and you wanted to go on a four-hour hike or climb up there's Rock or do you know something different, well, you weren't catered for. And you know everybody did the same thing, except when you came to optionals, which were always extra cost. So we coined this concept in, in major places. We call it scenic free choice. And, and on the rivers at the moment, there are many ports that we call in that you have five different alternatives. You can go everything from a 30 kilometer e-bike ride to a hike to a you know a church tour, you know, a cultural, or go and have coffee and cake in one of the historic cafes in town. There's a whole range, or you can do the standard lollipop tour, you know, where you you just we call them a the lollipop tour, but basically it's just a, a group of people doing the introductory tour of the old town, etc. So um, you know, we coined that earlier on and, and this river cruise taking somebody else's product was the opposite of that. It was only the basics included. And sure, we could have developed our own and put it on there, but we decided that also from a ship perspective, we could do something. We were selling a huge number of guests to the Canadian Rockies and then onto an Alaskan cruise. And we guaranteed everybody a balcony cabin instead of an inside cabin. And none of the cabins in, in Europe at that point in time had a step out balcony. So but to make it economic, you had to go to a longer ship, which meant engineering issues. And if you wanted a large restaurant with choice of dining venues and all the rest of it, you had to you know, redesign from the current standard 110 meter. So yeah, we just started with that in our heads and and said, right, how are we going to go about it? And I still remember stepping out the size of the cabin and the wet cell and everything and putting tape on the floor of my apartment in, <laughs> in Sydney and and my wife of course who does all the interior stuff and we were, the beds was going to be here and this is where all so you know it was all that sort of stuff it was back to basics if you like
0: <laughs> uh were there any any instances of marital tension as you get to design choices and cost choices of the interior and the external oh, I, mean, I remember no, fighting
1: no actually we don't now, still to this day i do The exterior, the general arrangement plan, which is, you know, the size of spaces, the number of cabins, the size of cabins, the number of restaurants, and all that other stuff. And also the capability of the ship. I work on that with my shipyard team on, you know, everything from the stabilizers to the drives and engines and all the other stuff, air conditioning and all that. And then, you know, Karen doesn't really have any input in that. And I don't have any input in the interior. She (laughs) asks me every now and again what I think. If she needs an opinion, typically she knows what she wants anyway. But no, I, I don't
0: really get involved in that. And I don't
1: I don't talk about the budget too much these days. She's pretty good on that as well.
0: <laughs> We've talked a good bit about the product and how you thought of that for both the land and the river, and you've clearly carried that over to the ocean vessels. I'm curious how you would describe your audience model. I mean, scenic the scenic eclipse vessels, eclipse one is out at sea now and two is coming along me in June. You call them luxury discovery yachts and what I've seen, at least of the online materials, they have what I would call an expedition more an expedition flavor to the experience than a cruise. I mean the emphasis is on the place and sites and learning and some level of activity, not just not on cabaret shows or the casino kind of experience. So I'm curious how would you describe your, your audience model and your Typical passenger, because they're getting a, I would say, a much, much more pampered treatment aboard yeah. Eclipse than some other quote unquote expedition ships. What's that balance you're trying to strike of adventurous and learning oriented and yet elegantly pampered?
1: I suppose we're trying to be all things to all people in some respects. You know, having a, a, an expedition vessel that is limited to that only, you know, from a financial modeling perspective is quite difficult because you can do very well in the polar regions, but then what else do you do? Um, and And if you've got something that is strictly expedition and doesn't provide a high level of luxury and you're a small vessel, it's very, very difficult to operate in other regions. So, you know, the design concept for Eclipse was we want to be able to deliver a better product and a better cruise in the Mediterranean than the ultra luxury competitors. And back then it was Silver Sea, Seaborne and Region. You know, we wanted larger standard cabins, we wanted bigger suites, we wanted more dining options, we wanted bigger spa. Plus, on top of that, you still have the discovery element. You can still jump in the helicopter and do a, a flight around Mount Etna. You know, you can still there's a whole range of possibilities, even in those non-expedition regions, that we can add on. So was always meant to be able to, you know, punch through 1.2 meters of ice and and get down there, you know, PC six class rated all the bells and whistles that it could do expedition amazingly, but it can also do it in luxury, where you can have sushi one day, fine French restaurant the next day, you know, a pizza in a cafe and you got seven different bars, you've got a huge spa and all the rest of it. So you can do it in utmost luxury and be in remotest region on earth. Um, with a ship that is as capable as anything that goes down there. So it's really meant to be able to compete both in polar regions and as just a straight ultra-luxury cruise ship anywhere else.
0: And how do you staff, I mean, you've got to have the ship team that runs the engines and does the navigation and all that, and a hotel team that takes care of the the cabins and the meals and all of that. Uh, Do you have an expertise team or an expedition team of some sort that is... Oh, yes, of course. What's the cruise team like? Yeah, we have we have 20 in our expedition team. Well, we
1: call them Discovery Team, and we're very fortunate to have Jason Flesher, who's our our leader of that department. So he puts the whole programs together and employs the people and in all the rest of it. He's, he's excellent. And, uh, yeah, that's a, an integral part and a very, very important part. You know, even in the Mediterranean, we'll have four Discovery Team members on board. And, you know, they they have kayaking, excursions, stand-up paddling, and, you know, they help with various other things like the helicopter and sub-operations, et cetera, as well. They give specialists knowledge on the regions. So we always have a discovery element regardless of where we are.
0: So tell me about the submarine. What's it like in the submersible? How deep have have you dived and where? I only went – I went for a dive in
1: Rieka Harbour. Just down to a shipwreck. I think mm, I was probably only sixty or seventy meters down. Maybe not even that far, to be honest. It wasn't. It wasn't all that deep. It can go down to three hundred meters, but we don't take it that far. And you know, it, it's a, describe it to people as being a, a little bit like fishing. You know, you can go out one day and you'll have bites and and land some great fish, and it'll be a fantastic day. And you'll go out the next day, and you won't get a bite at all for hours. And <laughs> It's a little bit like that. You know, you can literally have a whale or a leopard seal come up to the glass and swim past you. They've had some amazing sights. On the other hand, you can go down there and they call it a beer can dive because, you know, (laughs) there's not much else to see. But most people really enjoy the experience because they haven't been in a submersible or a submarine like that. And so it is a novelty in one respect, but in some regions, particularly around the reefs, et cetera, and even getting down to Antarctica, there's some some amazing things to see. But it, it's one of those; it is a bit hit and miss. And as distinct from the helicopter operations, it's never a miss. Um, we only go and fly where the, you know I've done quite a few flights now off the off Eclipse, and you know some of the stuff that you see, you just don't see from the water. And you know we did from Reykjavik to Greenland, and one of the flights there, we we're in a very deep fjord, and we climbed up this glacier that was very steep with all these beautiful pools. And it went up from sea level to two, over 2,000 metres. And, and we just climbed up this. And then out in front of us, so you've got mountains all around this very deep fjord. You've got these huge glaciers that just that go up, you know, for two or thousand, And then we got to the top and I looked out in front of me and I thought it was fog. It wasn't fog. It was clear. It was just the ice cap. And it went as far as the eye could see. Now, there is no way, unless you're an explorer, you're ever getting to see that on any cruise ship or you know anything else because it would take you days just to get up that glacier or up the mountains around it. you know, and we did it in fifteen minutes. so yeah,
0: and they are they are plenty sheer, so most of you, most of us are not going to make it up there even in days.
1: yeah, yeah, it's just phenomenal, and you know we did other flights over in Iceland as well and you know, what you get from the air, of course, it opens a completely different kaleidoscope. It's amazing.
0: So everyone does seem to be getting into the expedition game these days. You mentioned Silver Sea a while back and, you know, they've converted one of their cruise ships to be a luxury with Cabaret Shows Casino, a cruise ship. They've converted it to expeditions. They've flipped some cabins over into being an expedition mudroom, basically. They've loaded Zodiacs, all sorts of things. I'm actually going to do a sale with them in June because I'm curious to see what their expedition product is like. But everyone's getting in the game. It seems to be a pretty vibrant segment in the cruise market. What's what's your sense of the future of expedition cruising?
1: Um, We've just done a pretty detailed market analysis and, you know, small ship cruising is the fastest growing um, segment of cruising at the moment. It's growing at twenty percent a year. Um, there's wow. there's been a huge increase. You know, one of the reasons for building Eclipse was the new Polar Code was coming into uh, force, and right. the uh, a lot of the ships that were going down to Antarctica at the time. It, in fact, when we started talking about building Eclipse five or six years ago now. The average age of the Antarctic fleet was 26 years, and many of those were old Russian icebreakers and research vessels and all the rest of it, and they clearly were not going to be around when the Polar Code came in. They were just too expensive to to refit. So a lot of the new tonnage has replaced that that has gone out, but still there's definitely been an increase in capacity. And But at 20% a year, with the build costs the way that they've gone up and quite a large increase in capacity over the last two or three years, I think that the growth in numbers will, as there's not many more new builds coming, you know, over the next two to three years, I mean, most have already been delivered. I think that we'll see a really, really strong market for small ship cruising and, in particular, expedition. I think the pandemic – and just – the fact that these new ships are being built and, and coming to market is is changing people's perception of cruising. Um, I know that a lot of people that we've had on board would not go on a two, three, four, five, six thousand passenger ship. It's just not what they do. And you know, if you go on Eclipse, and I'm sure when you see it, you'll you'll understand why. It is just a completely different concept. And you know, I think it's going to be more and more popular.
0: What's your threshold for small ship? Some would say 400, some even say 600. You've not, you've not built anything over three,
1: right? Oh, boy, some of them say a 1,000, you know. Let's be honest, compared to the 6,500 megaships that they're building now, a 1,000 ship
0: is small. Yeah, well, true. <laughs> it's not small. It doesn't fit my standard of small, I can tell you that.
1: <laughs> Under that, it, it's still, I don't know whether that's a magic number, but it seems to be that you can provide the intimacy and that bespoke luxury when you're under that number. And if you have a look at it, Seabourn started with 200 passenger ships, Silver Sea, I think a bit over 300, and even Regent, I think were originally at the 300-odd level. And now all of those, 650, 700, 740, 750, all of their new builds. And look, that's just purely economics because there's no way even they'd tell you in a a private moment that you deliver a better experience with 450 or 600 or 750 guests. You don't, uh, you know, but what you do, you still only have four engines. You have one captain, you have one chief engineer, you know, the economics just get better and better the bigger you build, but the experience doesn't get better. So, you know, that was another reason for us to build at an ultra luxury level rather than just an expedition ship, because we believe that in the regions like the Med and Baltic and other areas that are typically, you know, where all the cruise ships go, we could deliver that experience the market had left.
0: Yeah. So being small, you can get into places, either little private sheltered coves in some remote area or smaller ports, you can get into places the large big box ships can't. I mean, you can you can dock right downtown in St. Petersburg instead of five miles out at the cruise ship port. Again, thinking of the luxury point you're aiming at, I, at least in principle, that could be. You also can source wines, cheeses, groceries more frequently and more locally than you could if you're, you know, five thousand passenger ship. You're going to load up at Rotterdam, and then you're going to load up again, maybe in London, and yeah.
1: And we do, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got an excellent culinary director, Tom. Goethe is a, a German guy. He's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, the chef literally goes into the fish market, and the fish of the day is the fish of the day. You know, that they do that sort of thing very, I mean, very difficult to do that in Antarctica, of course, but uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we don't throw lines overboard. But, you know, in many other places, yeah, you can do that, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That river trip I chartered with some friends years ago, you know, that was, it was just 12 passengers and a crew of about four. But that was one of the treats that the young French woman yeah. who was the tour guide yeah. would be, she'd be off the barge at like 5 a.m. each morning into the local village and get, you know, the local yeah, cheeses for lunch and yeah. breads, everything fresh, and and the local regional wines. It was just, it was yeah. kaleidoscope. Terrific. You tasted it through the yeah. <laughs> region as you sailed through the yeah. region. It was glorious. Magnificent.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Glenn, uh, I have to ask you to tell me a little bit about what I can expect when I meet you in Malaga in early June to officially bestow the name Eclipse Two on your new ship. And I also want to ask you what the status is of Azura, who's was one point pre-pandemic, I think hoped to come online in 2021 or so.
1: Yeah, it's uh, next ship. It, it came online at its first sailing was March 2022. Yeah, it was delayed because of the pandemic uh, for a number of reasons. It was a very difficult build down there because Vietnam literally locked the country down there was nobody coming in or out and uh, they even locked down between ho chi minh and hanoi so even within regions within uh, vietnam you couldn't travel so it was impossible to get supplies in and you know experienced people etc but yeah it started sailing in march and uh, its sister ship emerald sakara is finishing its build and it goes into service in august so uh, by August this year, our ocean fleet between the two brands, Emerald and Scenic, uh, will have four ships, yeah.
0: So events in Malaga, big party? It, it's always a, a great day. I mean,
1: I, I'm sure you'll enjoy smashing the bottle and we'll have a great lunch thereafter <laughs> and you'll get to visit the ship, of course, and go through it and meet the team and all the rest of it. You know, it it's just the culmination of two and a half years of toil for a lot of, A lot of our workers, and as you probably know, we we build the ships ourselves now. So we actually are the shipbuilder, both in Vietnam and also in Rieka. We have our own shipbuilding operations. So for us, a very strange thing, I suppose, because we come up with a concept, we engineer it, we build it, we own it, we operate it, the whole thing from start to finish. And uh, some people would tell you that's crazy. (laughs) And I wouldn't (laughs) disagree with them sometimes because it's a very difficult and involved process, but ultimately you get what you want and you can build something that is really specific to your guest needs and and we believe something that's very special. And, you know, every day I hear what my wife does and the amount of time and effort that she puts into every single space. There's not one space on Eclipse 2 that is the same as on Eclipse 1, not one. There's been material changes, there's been design changes, everything just to keep improving the experience. And uh, I think when you get on board, you'll see that all that effort's worthwhile.
0: So I have to ask what the bottle smashing day feels like for you and Karen, who've lived this from idea through all of the steps and machinations and angst. I mean, talk about being parent. I'm the godparent, godmother, but you two are the parents. What does that day actually feel like to you when that bottle smacks?
1: Naturally, of course, it's a celebration, there's, but realistically, when the ship sails the first time and, and even on that day, I mean, it's quite emotional that you know everybody coming together like that, but realistically, when you get a ship like this into service and it's working, there's just a huge sense of relief. Um, it, it, you can celebrate it. There's definitely some joy there, but I think the overwhelming feeling is relief. Oh, boy, thank heavens. Because, you know, the shipyard went bankrupt when we were building Eclipse 1 and it ended up being a, a massive challenge. You know, we took over the completion of the ship, which is literally unheard of in shipbuilding. Most people, even with Ritz-Carlton, they had the same experience and they towed the ship to another shipyard to complete it. It ended up being almost three years delayed. It's, I feel sorry for the, because I went through it myself. It's a very, very difficult thing. But, yeah, overwhelmingly it's, it's relief. When you walk around a ship when it's being built and you have a look at the complexity of the systems and how everything has to come together and work for you to go out, I mean, people don't realise how complex a ship like that is. You have to make your own water. You've got to store your own food, cook your own food. You can't plug into the local power grid or the local sewerage line. I mean, you know, you look at an office building and you think it's a complex build. It's nothing compared to a ship <laughs>
0: yeah. that has to bang
1: over 10 meter seas and and cut through ice and all the rest of it. I mean, navigate itself. It's a it's a very, very complex thing. And when you're walking around the build, you say, I can remember with Eclipse One, I just kept on walking around. Is you know, when they turn the key, is this thing gonna work? It's gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's a huge amount of relief when it all comes together. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah, There's a very, very apropos that you call some of your ships spaceships because they have a similar, a similar complexity because of the reliability and the independence that they have to have. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to go collapse back on your lounge again after she's named and on her way, like you did after you finished turning that first motel property around. Another six or seven weeks of getting up at one p.m.
1: No, not this time. I, but I can assure you, my shipyard manager and the workers will, you know. <laughs> There's a joke that goes around in shipbuilding. If there wasn't delivery date, no ship would ever be completed. And always in the last months, it's a massive effort. And when you see a ship a day before guest comes on board, you'd say there's a week's work. You see it a week before, you'd say there's at least two months. You see it a month before, you'd say there's six months. It's amazing how it comes together at the end. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they're working double shifts in much wouldn't surprise me at all
0: well glenn it's been an absolute delight talking with you and hearing how you came to be at this point in your life in your career and i get to meet you and enjoy the opportunity getting to see and maybe someday sail on one of your ships so thank you
1: well now that you've told me you're going with silver seas we've got to do something about that
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh i just told you it's a secret shopper kind of thing not to worry <laughs> uh,
1: okay yeah
0: But thanks so much. It's been an absolute delight. And I can't wait till we meet in person. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com.